preschoolers, you are dismissed at this time. So we, we have a glad to get, offer a preschool class today for those four and five year olds that are wanting to. Um, so yeah, Jordy, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, one quick announcement before we jump into the uh, the sermon this morning. Today is the last day to sign up for our Connect class. Uh, so if you are wanting to find out more about Franklin City Church, if you've never been through one of our Connect classes before, I'd encourage you to sign up today for that. Those classes are going to be uh, starting next Sunday, the 14th, and then the 21st. And we'll meet right after church here. We'll have lunch for you. And so that's why we need you to sign up today. Go to our website and scroll down to the bottom on the Forms button or at least come talk to one of us. But we need to know today, that way we have food for you. We're not going to turn anyone away, but we will not have food for those that do not sign up. Uh, So uh, come out to those. Um, Again, you're going to get to hear from our pastors about the mission and vision of Franklin City Church and how you can be more connected uh, to that. So... All right. Um, well, this morning, yes, we do, we do have a preschool class, and uh, so Jordy had been in here the last month or so, and love having in, him in here, but also love the, the option to have a preschool class as well. And so I was trying to get some feedback from him, you know, since he'd been in here in January, you know, get, get some constructive criticism maybe. And I was like, Jordy, all right, what, what do you think about the, the sermons, bud? And he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, Dad, the sermon should be shorter. That's what he said, Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I was like, oh, okay. He said the songs could be longer, but the sermon should be shorter. That's what he said. All right, so today, uh, today, uh, that is uh, not going to happen uh, because what does Jordy know? All right, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Probably good constructive feedback that uh, I think uh, as you grow in your preaching and teaching, you can say things more concisely. So I will work towards that, uh, but that is not going to happen today. So just settle in, uh, settle in. All right, go ahead, open up to Hebrews chapter seven. Hebrews chapter seven, and I did want to start out this morning. Um, not going to do that. All right. did want to start out this morning by talking to you guys about dreams, about dreams, and specifically a really frustrating dream that I recurrently have. You see, I have this frustrating dream that I can never get to, to where I'm trying to go. Okay. Anyone else have a dream like that where you're trying to just, you can't get to where you're trying to go. Thank you for a couple people just sympathizing with me. All right. Uh, other people maybe have that dream, right? You're in, in different seasons of life. It's looked differently for me. So in high school and college, it was always like, I couldn't get to class. Right? I, I would be you know, scrambling around the room, trying to grab a backpack, couldn't find my shoes, couldn't find my homework. And I just couldn't seem to get out the door and get to class. Uh, now, in, in this season of life, it looks differently. Um, it, it looks like now I can't get here on a Sunday morning, and I'm scrambling around the house. I'm trying to find my Bible, trying to find sermon notes. I'm like headed out the door only to remember that I forgot to write uh, or prepare a sermon. Uh, it's like, you know, I knew I had something to do this week, and I just completely spaced it. And it's like whatever happens in those dreams, it's so frustrating because I can't get to where I'm trying to go. And it's frustrating. You know you need to get somewhere, but you just can't seem to get there. Now, the really frustrating thing is that that is not just the stuff of dreams. But sadly, that describes a lot of our lives as well. 
Uh, maybe you're trying to get to a place where you are physically healthier, right? That usually every January that kind of rolls around, right? We want to get physically healthier. We want to get to a place where we're more disciplined with certain things in our life. Or maybe you're trying to get to a place in life where you're a more loving, a more caring person. Or you're, or you're trying to get to a place where your thought life is more pure. Or your uh, financial stewardship is more generous and wise. Maybe you're trying to get to a place in your relationships where you're a better communicator and you're more understanding and forgiving with, uh, uh, with people. Whatever it might be, there are, we all have places that we want to go and we hope that we will get there. But isn't it frustrating and then a bit discouraging that we just can't seem to get where we want to go. But church, I came to bring you good news this morning. I came to tell you that we have a better hope that we, in fact, will get there. And biblical hope, you've got to understand something about biblical hope. Biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not just wishing upon a star. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. And it is a confident expectation then that produces something in us. You see, biblical hope is a confident expectation that produces a lasting joy. And I'll say that again because that will uh, really help us as we go throughout today. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that produces lasting joy. You see, we often are frustrated and discouraged in life thinking that we are unable to get where we need to go because we have forgotten that we have a better hope. A better hope. You see, since the garden, since Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden due to their sinful disobedience, humanity has been trying to get back into the presence of God. Humanity has tried to be get, get back to having full access to God. And throughout the years, humanity, we have hoped that somehow, some way, or someone would be able to get us back to where we need to go, back into the presence of God, only to be frustrated and disappointed and honestly get to a point where we feel a bit helpless that everything in this world and everything in ourselves has not been able to get us where we need to go. And this morning we are back in Hebrews 7. So if you do have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 7 if you haven't already. And we're revisiting this teaching again that Jesus is our great high priest. But he's not just another priest after the Levitical priesthood. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And last week we saw how this mysterious Melchizedek really stirs up something in us, this longing for someone greater than anything this world has ever been able to offer us. We saw last week how in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek served as a type or a foreshadowing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we learned from him that in the same way, Jesus is both king and priest. And he has refreshed us and blessed us by giving us his righteousness and bringing us his peace. And now this morning, we will see a few things as well. This morning, we will see how the Levitical priesthood and really all human priests, cannot ultimately get us where we need to go. We'll then see how Christ's priesthood frees us and empowers us to get where we need to go. And then we will sit and enjoy and glory in the fact that because of Christ's priesthood, we now have a better hope that produces a lasting joy. So let's pray, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father God,
we do thank you for this opportunity this morning to proclaim your word and to hear your word. But Lord, we do come weak and needy to the task. Father, we long that we would be edified with your truth. We long that we would be equipped to do the work that you would have for us. But Lord, please help us. Please help me proclaim your truth with with both grace and with passion. Help me not muddy what you have made clear. We ask that your power would accompany these words that I'm about to speak and that it would awaken our dull, sluggish ears. Father, we ask that your people would be refreshed and convicted and comforted. Keep us in tune with your spirit. Lord, and I ask that you'd bring to my mind all that you would like me to put before your people this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. All right. Hebrews 7, verse 11. Let's go. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, let's first try to understand this word perfection, okay? Because this word perfection is not necessarily emphasizing what we would usually think of when we think of something as being perfect, okay? Usually when we think of the word perfect, we think of uh, flawless. We think of spotless and pure, like a, like a flawless performance, right? Like when Pastor Kevin was up here on the keyboard a couple of weeks ago, right? It was just perfection, right? Flawless performance, okay? But that's not necessarily what this word is trying to emphasize for us here this morning, okay? This word perfect has, has more uh, something to do with an arriving at a desired end or, or reaching a goal, reaching the purpose for which you were created and designed for, okay? So think of it this way. In light of the Super Bowl tonight, uh, which, which hopefully all of us as, you know, uh, former Peyton Manning fans, we can all root against Tom Brady once again and uh, root for Peyton in the commercials times, all right? Um, but in light of that, okay, think about what a perfect run would be. Okay, I would say if a running back tonight ran it all the way into the end zone, we could, in this sense, call it a perfect run, even though if he might have stumbled or tripped or had some imperfections along the way, uh, he he, he reached the end goal. Okay, and that's what this word perfection is getting at. It's, it's, It's you successfully getting where you're trying to go. It's reaching the goal. Now listen, humanity was created to flourish in the presence of God. Now, sin has caused some separation, right? Separated us from the presence of God. It has frustrated our attempts to get back into the presence of God and to have a right relationship with him. And so what this is saying is that the Levitical priests, they were unable to get us back to where we need to go. Mere human priests, have not been able to do this. They have not been able to get us back to where we need to go. And so remember, the author is writing this to people who many of them have come out of Judaism. And so for a second, just try to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, for them, hearing this, the Levitical priesthood was a big deal. I mean, at this time, it meant everything to them. It, It was how God, in his progressive revelation, had initially instructed them how to relate to him. These human Levitical priests were the way that people knew how to deal with sin. 
These Levitical priests were the way that people knew how they could relate to God, how they could at least have some limited access to God. But our author is trying to show them that something better has come than the Levitical priesthood. Something better has come. So don't go back to it. The Levitical priesthood, yes, served a specific purpose in the redemptive plan of God, but it was not meant to ultimately get people where they needed to go. A better priesthood was needed. You see, the Levitical priesthood was really limited in what it could do to deal with sin. And it never definitively dealt with it. What we'll see later in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, which we'll have up on the screen here, we'll see in Hebrews 10 that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. And then in Hebrews 10, verse 3, it says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and the ceremonial Mosaic law that they followed, it could provide a temporary covering for the sins of the people. It, yes, served as a reminder of the sins of the people, but it could not ultimately take the sins away. It couldn't do it. And I was reminded about the difference between the Levitical priesthood and Christ's priesthood the other day when Britt and I and the boys were cleaning up around the house. Okay? Uh, you see, Britt and I have very different strategies when we go about cleaning the house. And she's in the nursery today, so I feel like I can be a bit more free with you guys. All right? Um, so let's do this. We're going to go there. Okay? We have different approaches when it comes to cleaning the house. Uh, when I know people are coming over and we need to clean the house, my strategy is to take everything in the middle of the room and just shove it to the sides of the room and then provide some coverings over it. Right? Like under the couch, under the bed, uh, under the, the comforter, and then, you know, just cover it with the, with the bed sheet, right? And it's a little lumpy, but you can't really tell, okay? So that's, that's my strategy. And I'll admit that it is a temporary strategy, right? It's a temporary way to deal with and cover uh, the mess. Uh, Britt, on the other hand, all right, she has a very different strategy, and you can pray for us, uh, but she actually likes to deal with the mess and actually take care of things and put them where they need to go and actually take the mess away so that we don't have to deal with it later. Okay, the Levitical priesthood, all right, understand this, the Levitical priesthood, it could temporarily deal with and cover sins, but only Christ's priesthood could actually take them away. Only Christ's priesthood could definitively deal with it, okay? And the reason that I clean up that way is not because I am lazy. It's because I'm trying to teach my boys the difference between the old and new covenant, all right? That's, no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's not true. But actually, okay, okay, here's the thing. It's actually not because I'm lazy. And uh, who, who's messy in here? Do we have, like, messy people? That you're willing to admit it. Yes. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. I know a lot of you guys are messy. Okay. I see you there. All right. Um, it's actually messy. Most messy people are not messy because they are lazy. Most messy people are messy because they are indecisive, actually. And it's actually in those moments they're delaying decision making. And so they just want to put it off to a later time. Okay? And this is actually why you're married to a spouse that's opposite of you. It's not that messy people marry clean people, although that is a good strategy. 
That is a good strategy. It's actually indecisive people are attracted to decisive people, and decisive people are attracted to indecisive people. And that's because if you had two decisive, two decisive people dating, they would not make it to the wedding because they would be at each other's throats. And if you had two indecisive people, they would starve to death because no one would decide what to do for dinner, okay? So that's why opposites attract, all right? But that is not why we're even talking about that. So you guys got me off track. Uh, Why were we talking about cleaning? Yes, because, because the Levitical, I'm sorry, that one was free. That was not, that was not even where we're going, okay? Um, But the Levitical priesthood, right, it could temporarily deal with sins. It could temporarily cover and be a reminder of sins, but it could not definitively take it away. You see, mere human priests, could not take us where we needed to go. They could not ultimately take away our sins and give us full access to God. Therefore, don't put your faith in human priests. Because if you do, frustration and discouragement will define your life instead of a life lived with a better hope that produces a lasting joy. Now listen, if this Levitical priest, if these Levitical priests could not get us where we needed to go, then certainly any mere human priest, including ourselves, cannot get us where we ultimately need to go. The priest, right, in most Protestant churches, right, we don't have priests, but the priest at the Catholic church cannot ultimately get you where you need to go. Your favorite author and podcaster cannot ultimately get you where you need to go. Your pastors cannot ultimately get you where you need to go. Kids, I know we've got a lot of kids in here. Kids, your parents cannot ultimately get you where you need to go. Your homeschool curriculum cannot ultimately get you where you need to go. And I realize that this is, this is a bit humbling then to even be able to say that you, in your own strength, cannot get you where you need to go. And if you could, why in the world did there need to be, was there a need for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? But church, the truth is, is that we needed a better priest. We needed a better hope. We could not definitively deal with our own sin. We could not bring ourselves into a full and everlasting access to God that we were made for. We needed a better priest to arise. And the good news is that he did. He did, church. The question then naturally arises, well, what was the point of the Levitical priesthood? Like, like, why even have that as a part of God's, like, redemptive plan? Why have it at all? Why not just start with Jesus? Why in the world did Jesus just not come back at the end of Genesis 3, before Genesis 4 and Cain and Abel and all that? Like, why did he just not come back then and deal with sin right then and right there? Why all this mess of humanity trying to get back into the presence of God, only to be frustrated and discouraged in the process? And here's where we need to understand that God has a purpose for all these things, including the Levitical priesthood and the law. And so we must come to understand and appreciate how the Levitical priesthood and the law relate to the priesthood of Christ and the gospel. We have to see how these two relate. Look back at Hebrews 7, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. 
For the one of uh, whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, his resurrection. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A quote from Psalm 110, which we will go to in a second. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Oh, church, we have a better hope. We have a better hope. But we need to understand a few things about the law. We need to understand a few things about the law and the Levitical priesthood because the Old Testament does have a lot of rules and regulations and it can be confusing for Christians to know what to do with all of them, right? I mean, there's, there's some weird ones in there too, right? And you're like, what do we do with this? Do they all apply to us? Uh, do we throw them out? Uh, like, like, what do we do with the law of God? And theologians have tried to deal with this. They've offered some, maybe some helpful suggestions at times to understand God's law in three categories, right? Do we understand God's law as the ceremonial law and the civil law and the moral law, right? And the priests, they were mainly concerned with the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was what gave instructions for sacrifices and offerings to God. It's, it's how it dealt with people's uncleanness before a holy God. And when Christ came and offered up himself as the once and for all sacrifice, much of that ceremonial law was fulfilled and completed in Christ. And then you have the civil law, which were laws that were given specifically for the nation of Israel. And certainly there is some wisdom and even some of God's moral law that comes through these civil laws. But there's some debate on whether or not all these are directly applicable to, to modern day nations if they are to rule and govern like the nation of Israel did. But then we have God's moral law, right? And God's moral law includes laws that are all about instruction and, and, and regulations on justice and righteousness and things like the Ten Commandments, which are all good and wise instruction for us today. And so wh whether you see God's law through the lens of these three categories or you see them all as one, what's the purpose of them? And what do we do with them? What do we do with them? Do we just throw out the law since now a better priest and a better hope are here? I don't think we can quite do that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, much in the same way that Moses comes down the mountain and gave the law to the people of God, Jesus came and stood on and gave a sermon on the mount, and he illuminates to us God, what God's law looks like when the law is written on people's hearts. And then, and then he goes on and says in Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so I don't think we can throw out the law. We can't think that it doesn't serve a purpose. We can't dismiss it. The law has a purpose. But what is its purpose? What is its purpose? So when I make a rule or a law for my boys to follow, uh, there's a few things that happen, okay? Uh, for example, we recently made a rule in our household uh, that all the Walker men and future men we're going to make sure that we always held doors open for Brit. Okay, uh, we we wanted to make sure that she does not have to open a door. Okay, so so what 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 me giving that rule and law to my boys? What happens? 
Well, the first thing that happens is that it reveals to the boys my heart. It reveals to them some of my heart, right? That I love and cherish Brittany and I care for her so much that I don't want her to ever even think about what she has to do with a door, okay? With five walker men around her, my hope is that in a few years, she gets to a door and she just forgets what to even do with it, right? She's like, and maybe that's taking it too far. I don't know, but, but that idea that she just feels loved and cherished in that way. And so by me giving that rule to my boys, it first reveals to them some of my heart and some of my nature and some of my character. The second thing that by me giving a law or rule, what it does, the second thing is that it reveals to them their own hearts. It reveals to them how maybe they haven't been cherishing their mom like they should be. It maybe reveals to them some, some conviction that they were even unaware that how to cherish and honor the women in their lives. It wasn't even on their radar, but by me giving them this rule or law, it now all of a sudden has brought awareness to their own hearts. The third thing that happens when I give a rule or a law to my boys is that it encourages then a relationship with me. Because now they see my heart, They've had some things about their own heart revealed, and now we're in a relationship and we're talking about it, right? Now they're like, wow, okay, Dad, you cherish and honor and respect Mom. I haven't always been doing that with all the women in my life, so how does this look like, right? What does this look like going forward? And now through the years, now we're talking about how we can love and cherish and honor the women in our lives, and we have that relationship going forward. So that one simple rule or that one simple law it reveals to them my heart, it reveals to them their heart, and it encourages a relationship with me that frees them and empowers them to obey that law well into the future. You see, God's law was not given so that you could establish your own righteousness. It wasn't given for that. God's law was given to reveal his heart to you, and his nature and his character to you. God's law was given then to reveal what's in your own heart and the sin that exists there, to show you your need for a Savior. And it, that law was then given to push you into a relationship with that Savior who then frees you from your enslavement to sin and empowers you to now go obey and delight in the law. The law does have a purpose. Its purpose was to lead you to Christ to lead you to Christ. Now, when people don't understand the role of God's law, they usually fall into one of two errors, okay? They either become legalists or they become licentious. And here's what I mean. Legalists keep living under the law. They live lives trying to gain God's approval through their good works and through their right living. They think that they can establish their own righteousness by living under the law. Now, life is really frustrating and oftentimes discouraging for them, like a dream where they just can't seem to get where they're trying to go, but they're usually hard-headed and hearted enough that they're going to keep pulling up their bootstraps and trying. But that's not the gospel, and that's not the role of God's law. You then have licentious people, which is, is think of this as people that feel like now they have a license to sin. And they kind of swing, swing the pendulum the other direction. And they completely dismiss God's law because they say, well, now I'm under grace. I don't, therefore, God's rules don't matter much to me at all. 
But church, both legalism and licentiousness are wrong, and that's not how the gospel and the law relate to one another. Both are not living with a better hope of a better priest that brings a lasting joy. Both the legalist and the person that feels like they have a license to sin, they are not living with a better hope and a better priest that brings lasting joy. So how do we then, who have a better priest, And Hebrews says that with a new priest, there is a change in the law. How do we now relate to the law? How do the gospel and the law relate to one another? And we're going to put a quote up on the screen. I've sort of adapted this and and added uh, in some things about the priesthood to make it make more sense to our context. But this is from Pastor Bob Thune's phrase from uh, the book, A Gospel-Centered Life. And he writes, the law and the Levitical priesthood along with it served to show us our need for and the glory of the gospel. And the gospel then frees us and empowers us to obey the law. You see how these two relate? We don't dismiss one for the other. The other, the law and the Levitical priesthood along with it served to show us our need for and the glory of the gospel. And then the gospel frees us and empowers us to obey the law. You see, God's law is so good that because it first reveals the heart and God's nature and character to us. It then reveals to us and makes us aware of our own sin and disobedience and how because of our sin we have been placed under the curse of the law. But thanks be to God, our better high priest has come to free us from the curse of the law. Paul, when he writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And all the Gentiles in the building said, Amen. Later then in Galatians 3, he writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law no longer stands over us as a judge. In Christ, we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. And God has now sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to transform us, and to put his law on our minds and write his law on our hearts, not so that we would dismiss the law, not so we would try to obey it out of duty, but so that now God's law would be our delight. Would be our delight. God's law leads us to Christ, and Christ frees us and empowers us to obey and delight in the law. Christians no longer live under the law, but the law most certainly lives in them. So what's this practically look like in your life? Okay, I know we're kind of talking, kind of big picture here, but what does this actually look like in your life to live with a better hope that produces a lasting joy and to understand how God's law and the gospel of Jesus relate, to understand how the Levitical priesthood and Christ's priesthood relate? What does this practically look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, let's first start with like the two great commandments, right? When Jesus, when he was being questioned, was asked what the greatest commandment was, and Jesus answered them in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He says, and he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so there it is. All right, here's a command. Here's a a, a good law that will be a blessing to you, right? Go love the Lord your God with all your heart. Go love him with all your soul. Go love him with all your mind. Like, go, go do that. I'm telling you, if you go do that, you will have a blessed and happy life. If you go do that, you will save your pastors so much work in the future. So just go do it. But what inevitably, inevitably happens is that come Monday morning, maybe Sunday night or afternoon, you realize, oh, in my own strength, I don't know if I can do that. I don't always love God with all my heart. I don't always love him with all my mind. And even if I did, like even if we got past that one, I mean, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't always do that. In my own strength, I can't always do that. I mean, we love ourselves a lot. And not even always in a vain way, right? But just like most of what you do, you're thinking about how to take care of yourself, right? You're you're loving yourself a lot. And then every time you get on social media, you're told to love yourself even more. So that means you got to love your neighbor even more. And so if God gives us this command on Sunday morning, at the very least by Monday, we realize we can't do this. But don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Understand the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to lead you to Christ. So now here's where we, in that moment, we look to Christ and say, God, I I don't always love my neighbor as myself, but you did. But you did, Jesus. You lived the life of perfect obedience that I have failed to live, and you paid the penalty for my lack of love for neighbor, and you have freed me from the power of my love for self, and you've credited your righteousness now to me, and so now I'm accepted and approved by God because of the obedience of Christ, and now I've been given the Holy Spirit that is transforming me and empowering me to go love my neighbor as myself. And so now I wake up in the morning reminding myself of the gospel, clinging to Christ, and then going in the power of the Spirit to go love my neighbor as myself, not out of duty, but out of delight. Out of gratitude to the Lord that I am accepted and approved because of Christ's obedience. Now I have a better hope and a lasting joy. And church, this should be happening every day of our lives. When we hear God's law, we hear his heart. We are broken over our sin. We turn to Christ. We receive grace and forgiveness. We are then empowered and freed to go obey his law. The law drives us to the gospel, and the gospel frees us and empowers us to obey and delight in the law. Christ has freed us and empowered us so that we would delight in the law and be able to echo David in Psalm 40. When he writes Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Christ's fulfillment of the law has changed the law. It is no longer hanging over us, compelling our duty. It is within us, causing our delight. Yeah. 
Our relationship to the law has changed. A Christian no longer lives under it, but the law lives within the Christian. You have a better priest. You have a better hope. You have a better relationship with the law. It is no longer your duty. It is your delight. You see, no mere human being no mere Levitical priest and no godly parent or pastor can ultimately get another human being where they need to go. Only frustration and discouragement will meet us when we try to do that. No, we can't take people all the way, but we can take them to Christ. We take them to Christ, and it is Christ, our better priest, who is the only one who can get humanity back to where it needs to go back into the presence of God, back to having full access to God. And this perfection, this reaching the end goal, is only attainable through Christ. You see, if I have Christ, then I have a better hope. I have a better hope for my kids. I don't merely hope that they will just be obedient and polite kids. Like, that would be nice. I don't just hope that they would get a good job and a safe and have a healthy, happy life. No, I have a better hope. I hope that if I put Christ before them day after day, that they too will have a hope that stems from faith in Christ and that they will grow up to not just dutifully obey rules, but that in Christ my hope for them is that they would delight to do the will of God. Isn't that, wouldn't that be a better hope for our kids? Not that they would just follow all the rules, but that they would actually delight to do the will of God. We can't take them all the way there, but we can put Christ before them every day. He can take them there. We have a better hope. We have a better priest. You are not the priest. Take them to Christ. My better hope, my better hope, what it does, it allows me to pray, God, do whatever it takes so that they would glorify you and enjoy you forever. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm praying that all my kids would have boring testimonies, right? That they would grow up and say, you know, just like I don't remember when I started loving my mama, I don't remember when I started loving Jesus. I've loved them since day one, right? That's, what I'm, that's my hope and my prayer for them. But I'm telling you, I have a better hope, a better priest, and I take them to Christ and I say, do whatever it takes, that they would glorify you and enjoy you forever. Do whatever it takes to give them a better hope than the American dream. Do whatever it takes to give them a better hope that produces a lasting joy. Turn with me now to Psalm 110 because I want you to see how our hope is so much better than anything you've heard, even maybe from other Christians. And uh, we'll, we'll close with Psalm 110, so you don't have to hold uh, your place in Hebrews unless you just want to. Uh, but go to Psalm 110, and I want you to see how great our high priest is. Because I believe if you can behold how great our priest is, then you can start to understand and appreciate how great of a hope you have. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. And it, and it showed up again in Hebrews 7. We'll see it again next week. Uh, in the passage as well. In fact, if anyone asks you what the New Testament is all about and you want to give them a concise answer, just tell them it's about how Psalm 110 has come true. 
That, that is what the New Testament is about. The New Testament is about how Psalm 110 has come true, okay? Psalm 110, verse 1. It's the Psalm of David. He writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a Psalm of David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 1, we see a conversation between two members of the Godhead. Here we see the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, speak to David's Lord, Adonai, the Messiah. This was one of the passages that when Jesus was being questioned, you know, after they followed up with the, what's the greatest commandment, they gave him all these questions. He flips the script. He asks the religious leaders of the day a question, and he asks, how is it that David, in the spirit, calls one of his descendants Lord? And after he asked that question, it says they all stopped asking questions from then on. They're like, all right, yeah, we're done. All right? How can David call a descendant of his Lord? But here's how that can happen. You see, it's because the Messiah, the descendant of David, was the pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God himself, who had put on flesh and came and was born in the line of David, and after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father so that Yahweh could say to Adonai, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All right, so, so this is, gives us our understanding that the Messiah, the one coming in the line of David, is actually God himself, the second person of the Trinity, okay? And he is king. He is king, and he's sitting on a throne. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is what's happening right now. Is Jesus ruling? Yes. Are there still a lot of enemies? Yes. It says he's ruling in the midst of his enemies and will do so until all his enemies are made his footstool. However, his people, we see, are offering up themselves to him. They are embracing his kingship and his reign is bringing them freedom. His reign is bringing them hope. All right, this is Jesus, our king, right? The, the Christ who came, he is king. But then look at verse four. He's also our priest. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right, so I know we've been talking about this for a lot of weeks, but it needs to be ingrained in our minds that not only is he our king, but he is also our priest. And he will intercede for us and represent us for the, before the father forever. And if this Jesus is your king, and if this Jesus is your priest, then you have a better hope. Better than even what you've been told in Christian circles or what you'll hear on Christian radio. I mean, listen, if your youth group got you hoping that Jesus wants to be your boyfriend and comfort you when you are feeling down, listen to me, you have a better hope. He's better. There's a better hope. Listen, if your parents got you hoping that Jesus would make you a nicer person, you have a better hope. If your friend got you hoping that Jesus would make your marriage better, listen, I, I hope that happens, but you have a better hope. Yeah. 
If a politician got you hoping that Jesus would bring you national success, you have a better hope. And if a preacher got you hoping for a get-out-of-hell-free card at the end of your life, listen, church, you have a better hope. Jesus Christ, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, is seated on the throne right now, and he will reign on that throne until all enemies have been made his footstool. And he is also our great high priest. He's the only one that can get us where we need to go. He's the only one that can get us back into the presence of God. And he is bringing his people freedom, and he's bringing his people a better hope that produces a lasting joy. Church, we are oftentimes discouraged and we are oftentimes frustrated trying to get where we need to go, trying to get back into the presence of God and fellowship with Him. But we're trying to do this in our own strength. We're trying to do this by trusting in ourselves or others to get us where we need to go. But church, we have a better hope that brings a lasting joy. And I'm not just pulling that phrase out of anywhere. So turn, uh, we'll, we'll close with this. Turn over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 28. Why can I say that we have a better hope that brings lasting joy? Look at Proverbs 10, verse 28. God's word says in Proverbs 10, 28, says the hope of the righteous brings joy but the expectation of the wicked will perish you are bombarded all week long with the expectation of the wicked but hopefully when we gather as believers we are reminded of the hope of the righteous that brings joy we have a better hope that brings us a lasting joy because we have a better priest. We have a new relationship with the law. It's no longer our duty. Now it's our delight. And so, church, if you've found the events of this last year, to, that, that you, if you've found that it has stolen your joy a bit, I think that that's likely because you have forgotten that you have a better hope. And it is a hope that brings lasting joy. Psalm 110 has come true. Let's pray.